Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to Ginger Gerald You Lucky Bastard. Last week we had an absolute ball when we spilt the tea, remember, to celebrate Ginger Gerald's 10th episode? Tea opened up about the trials and challenges of life abroad from her perspective and we ended up both laughing and crying. Bit of an emotional roller coaster, to be honest, but you know what? That's good for the soul. No harm done whatsoever. She also took the opportunity to give old Ginger Gerald here a bit of stick about his obsessional behaviours. And prior to spilling the tea, you may remember that we headed into the garden and you got a bit of an insight into Ginger Gerald's wannabe self-sufficient world, not to mention an audible glimpse of my nice melons, not forgetting the butternut squash, of course. As promised, I did pop the odd photo onto the GGYLB social media channels so you could see with your very own eyes that I wasn't lying. So thanks for your comments, your likes, and as always, of course, your mickey taken. All is taken in very good spirit. And so that brought us very nicely to the end of season one of Ginger Gerald, You Lucky Bastard. And I hope you really enjoyed it. I know from the numbers and from your comments that, of course, some of the episodes were a bit more relevant for some of you than others, and that's perfectly normal. So now, without further ado, we're going to launch straight into our weekly series two. And in this series, we're going to mix it up a little bit, the format. There'll be some of my obsessional, slightly nerdy monologues that you've got used to, of course, interspersed with the odd invited guest to give us a different angle on the themes that we're going to cover. But to get today's episode up and running, here's a question for you all. How many of you remember that classic Shaking Stevens number from the early 80s? You drive me crazy. Come on, I know how old some of you are. (laughs) Anyway, that's our theme for today. We're going to delve into the myriad of differences between driving in one country versus driving in another. What are you supposed to do differently? What's okay and what's not? Which rules just make no sense at all? And what does all that arm waving really mean? We're looking to identify which aspects of driving overseas really do drive Ginger Gerald, and no doubt all of you too, crazy. Well, I guess the very starting point is the side of the road that you're accustomed to drive on. And yes, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, much of the so-called British Caribbean, India, former British Empire countries and territories, all of that lot, you're a little bit in the minority still by driving on the left-hand side of the road. And that, in itself, leads to some maybe amusing but mainly quite scary episodes in many people's overseas driving careers. The very first time I drove overseas was in the US, Pittsburgh to be precise, and it was just a couple of years after that famous Shaking Stevens top 10 hit. I rented a car one day just to do a bit of sightseeing while my mate, lived there at the time, he went off to work. So I ordered, remember this is in the States, I ordered a medium-sized car. Well, that was my first mistake. It's a bit like ordering food in the US. It doesn't really matter what you order. You get enough on your plate to feed an entire village. 
So my medium-sized car was a New Yorker. Wow. Now, I'm not very tall and I don't have much of a wingspan, but I'd have needed to be an albatross just to reach the passenger door. It was miles away. This car was both wider and longer than the house I was living in at the time. Oh, and of course, I should have known this, but I didn't. It was automatic. I now know that an automatic car is the easiest and most stress-free of cars to drive. But if you've never driven one before, or even been in one when somebody else has driven it, then you really have no clue sometimes even where to start. And we didn't have phones with Google on them those days, so I couldn't just look it up. So Ginger Gerald, a little shy and embarrassed, had to traipse back into the rental office to ask in front of a huge line of people how you drive an automatic car. Well, at least I made somebody's day that day. And my next experience of driving outside of the UK was completely different. In fact, almost the opposite. There were four of us in my brother's fabulous Volkswagen Beetle, heading from Manchester to Madrid for another brother's and mine's wedding. Only two of us were drivers at the time, so the owner drove the lion's share, but when he got a bit tired and needed a quick kip, which isn't so easy with four of you in a bocho, no air conditioning, very little space and super noisy, then he passed the key to his little brother, Ginger Gerald here. Well, we were halfway down the west coast of France and all was going smoothly. There I was, feeling pretty cool at the wheel and very confident, even as we approached a friendly, quiet little roundabout. Suddenly, out of nowhere, my brain turned to spaghetti and I couldn't fathom this roundabout out at all. I got really panicky over something which surely was not really that complicated. I only had two choice. But yes, you've guessed it. I sailed around that very first roundabout the wrong way. Well, I'm still here. So we got lucky and lived to tell the tale. But it just shows how easily it can happen and how limited and programmed our brains are. Well, maybe it's just my brain, but I bet somebody else has done that. Come on, anyone else out there who's done it? Surely not just me. Now, my first longest stint overseas driving was when I was living and working in the French Alps in the winter. And we all know that driving in snow and ice is hazardous enough, no matter where you are. But if you're right up at the top of the Alps, then things can be a little bit more extreme and, of course, a little bit more dangerous. So at the beginning of the ski season, those of us who were lucky enough to be being assigned cars, we were given a course on how to drive in the snow, and that was fantastic. And they even warned us against parking overnight on tricycles, something I'd never even thought of. But a bunch of my colleagues ended up having to pay the excess on their insurance to cover icicle damage to the roofs of their car. So there's a little pointer for you. Something else they trained us on was how to put snow chains onto your wheels. Now, I have to say, it was a fabulous course. And I felt, after the course, I felt fully prepared to conquer the mountains in my little Renault Clio. And as I drove up the mountain, it started to snow, but I felt good. The snow got heavier and the driving and visibility got worse and worse. Eventually, just about 10 kilometers before getting to the ski resort, 
the police were stopping every single car and obliging them to put their snow chains on. No chains? You had to turn around and go back down the valley. Well, no problem for Ginger Gerald. I'd just done my course. I got the certificate and everything. And I'd got brand new chains in a brand new box. So that was perfect for me. Except just one minor detail. The course we did in the nice Renault garage was on a warm, sunny afternoon down in the valley. Now here I am having to do it for the first time and for real. And I was in a blizzard. It was dark. I was in a huge traffic jam, people waiting behind me. And just to add to the stress, and I have to say something that actually wasn't covered in the course, was by the time I'd just got the chains out of their box and laid them out in the ground like they showed me to, my hands were already like blocks of ice. And believe me, it takes a lot longer and you tend to swear a lot more and a lot louder when your hands are blocks of ice. Anyone had that experience driving up to the mountains? Now then, no such blizzard conditions when driving in Cancun, of course. So, driving in Mexico. Well, how do I best describe this? Anarchic? Lawless? Shocking? Erratic? I reckon all of those words are pretty fitting. As you can just buy a license. You don't need to bother doing lessons or passing a test or anything like that. Oh no. And if your vision's not so good, don't worry. The authorities are very modern and they take a sort of equal opportunities approach to blindness. No sight, no worries. You can just drive anyway. Did you all listen to the podcast that I call Blummin' Bureaucracy, by the way? The bit about my daughter and me getting our Mexican driving licenses? Technically, in Mexico, you need to be 15 to apply for and obtain a provisional driving license. But the reality is that you see kids, I swear, of 12 years old driving around in their parents' great big V8 pickup trucks. So it's no great surprise that drivers in Mexico... Not all of them, of course. We don't do generalizations on GGYLB. But a large number of drivers just do absolutely what they want and whatever they think is the best or the most fun in any given situation. And typically, and again, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. It's not me suggesting this is a good thing. But if the police stop you because, say, your lights don't work or you haven't got a license or you're 10 years old, or you've had a few too many Coronas or Margaritas, then you can simply surreptitiously hand them a 200 peso note, carefully concealed under your driving license, of course, and you'll be on your way, no more questions asked. Sometimes, I've heard, a can of Coke and a bag of crisps does the trick. No formal fines, no removal of points, no license suspension and definitely no obligatory safe driving courses for repeat offenders. Now, I could write an entire book on driving situations in Mexico, but I'm not going to do that. I'll just give you one example, okay? There's a road that goes from Cancun in the north to Playa del Carmen, which is due south. Normally takes about an hour and it's commonly known as the Carretera de la Muerte, the Highway of Death. 
So as the name might suggest, it's a dangerous bit of road made poorly lit at night and so much worse by the dangerous driving that goes on. Now, one of the problems are the combis. You might have come across combis in lots of places. These are, well, here anyway, they're minivans. Usually they're knackered and really, really old. They can stop and start whenever and wherever they fancy it. If someone wants picking up or dropping off, they just stop there and then wherever they happen to be. They don't have set stops like buses. They just stop suddenly and randomly. And very rarely do their brake lights seem to work. So you have no clue if you're driving along behind them. You have no clue when they may pull on the anchors right in front of you. The more trips they can do, and with the highest possible average occupancy, the more money the drivers can make. So, of course, they stack them as full as they possibly can. Some of them, known as the express service, expect you to jump in and out while the thing is still moving. Express indeed, very clever. So if you're new to driving in Mexico, I highly recommend that you belt up, you don't drive at night, and you ensure that you have at least four eyes, including two in the back of your head. Oh, and then maybe say a prayer or two. I think all over the place, it's got more and more common for entertainers or service providers to ensure you aren't bored while you're waiting at red lights. It's even worse if you're at the front of the queue because then you feel sort of really obliged to hand over your hard-earned dosh to a juggler who can't juggle or a unicycler who can't unicycle. But in Mexico, and I guess equally so, if not more so in many other countries, you need to have a big heart. You need to open your window and be prepared to be a little bit more charitable than at least some of the time. The young kids selling papers or sweets, they've probably got next to nothing. And anything you can give is a help. The elderly who ask for a coin or two probably desperately need those coins to get themselves something to eat. But beware, the squeegee brigade, now they'll squirt soap all over your window before you even see them coming. And if you don't immediately show signs of at least willingness to pay them something, then that soap will remain there and you're left absolutely blind. The lights turn to green and you can see nothing. So that's not a good situation. So my advice, carry quite a lot of small coins in your car. Don't pretend that you can't see these people when they come to your window. They know you can. And don't suddenly turn on your windscreen wipers to try and scare them away. And if they really are talented circus performers, then... Give them a bob or two. You'd pay for a circus ticket, wouldn't you? Anyway, when we eventually moved to Mallorca from Cancun, the driving was definitely much, much more disciplined, far less erratic. Generally speaking, people kept roughly, roughly, to the speed limits. They tended to stop at red lights more often than not and didn't actually try to mow down pedestrians on zebra crossings just for the fun of it. So all of that felt really good to us. And I very strongly advise against trying to hand over a bit of a cash to the Guardia Seville should they stop you. That's not a good idea. However, not everything about driving in Mallorca or in Spain is straightforward. For instance, they have a slightly odd approach, or I think it's an odd approach, to roundabouts. There's a roundabout where we live. 
which we navigate daily. We call it the roundabout of death. There it goes again. Now, before you get too worried, I'm pleased to say that to my knowledge, nobody's actually died there. This roundabout has two lanes when you're joining it and then two lanes when you leave it. So that's fairly straightforward. And it's always super busy. No matter what time of the day, virtually impossible just to get onto safely. So at some point, you've just got to put your foot down and go for it. If you delay a little bit too long, then the cars behind you will be on your case, blowing their horns and waving their hands all over the place like mad people. But if you pull out right in front of someone, then of course you have to deal with their anger and maybe the odd unpleasant finger salute as well. To add to that, and this is the odd bit and the part that drives me crazy, drivers are taught in Spain to stick to the right-hand lane of roundabout. So that's the outside lane no matter where they're planning to exit the roundabout. So in theory, everyone is in the outside lane, but they could be turning right, they could be going straight on, they could be turning left, or they could just be doing loops and loops of the roundabout because they've no clue where they're going. There's no way of knowing. And that's the theory, but the reality is that cars are in both line, lanes and you have even less of a clue about what their exit plans may be. Anyway, it was very clear that this particular roundabout was a nightmare for everyone. So, in their great wisdom, and I take my hat off to them, the local government road planning department decided to make things a little bit easy. So what they did was they added a third approach lane. But the roundabout itself still only has two lanes and all of the exits still only have two lanes. So now it's like the start of a Formula One. You've got three lanes of cars all revving up, all frustrated and impatient. And they have to race to get onto the roundabout because the roundabout has only two lanes. Oh, it's completely bonkers. And far worse, of course, than it ever was in the first place. But hey, public money very nicely spent. Oh, and they, they, by they I'm referring to the Spanish, they love an on and off junction on a motorway. Do you know what I mean when I say on and off junction? You know how in the UK you're on the motorway and you have a lovely junction to exit the motorway and then a very other nice one to join it. Nice and easy, no additional or unwanted complexity involved. Well, in Spain, oh no coming on and off motorways is converted into a bit of a sport, a high-risk activity, insurance companies would call it, I reckon. If you're leaving the motorway, then you have to sort of battle for position with cars joining the motorway. And if you're joining the motorway, then you have to compete with those who are leaving. So all these cars are like crisscrossing each other like an automotive bit of Morris dancing as they move in and out of the lanes to get on and off. Who's going to accelerate, get ahead and win? Who's going to feel they have to break and lose? Oh, and you only have about 100 or meters or so to successfully navigate this particular operation, or you'll simply fail to leave or join the motorway. And then you'll have to keep going to the next junction and try all over again. Now, here's a good one, and one that can get you into a little bit of trouble. Driver's signs mean different things 
depending where you are. You must have come across this in loads of places. For example, us Brits, we like flashing our headlights to people. We tend to do it when we're in a good mood, we're feeling generous and we're letting them out into a line of traffic or whatever it might be and we love doing it. And we love them to say thank you too. But if you're in Spain, to be honest, probably most other countries, and you see that somebody's flashing their lights at you, it means get out of the effing way. I'm coming through whether you like it or not. And what about sticking the visa at someone who's just cut you up? In most countries, that's not really going to have the effect you intended. You need the middle finger for that one. And often in Spain, and I bet this must be even worse in, oh, I don't know, Italy or Greece or Turkey or loads of other places, you're driving behind a car and the driver is waving his hands all over the place, gesticulating away and hardly ever putting his hands on the steering wheel, let alone having his eyes on the road. You're probably thinking that they're arguing about some huge family issue or debating the death penalty or about to kill each other. But oh no, they might be just deciding what they're going to have for lunch. So, have we covered off some of the things that drive you absolutely crazy when you're driving abroad? As a word of warning, it's a good idea not only to make sure you know what the laws are, of course, and how they differ from what you already know or think you know, but speak to someone who's been taught to drive in that country. They'll tell you what you're doing wrong and watch out for them roundabouts. So, We've come to the end of this first episode of series two. Thanks as always for listening in. Look out for the second series trailer, which I'll be putting up on all channels very soon. It'll give you a feel for what we've got coming up without, of course, giving away all the fun and games and shenanigans. Soon, really, really soon, in fact, after many years of absence, me and T, we're heading back to Cancun on holiday to visit our friends. We can't wait, it's gonna be amazing. So one theme I'm really looking forward to exploring is how our views, observations and perceptions of the place and its people have changed over all of those years since we've been there. And of course, the other way around, how their perceptions of us might have changed, apart from the fact that we're slightly older farts than we were before. So lots more to come from Ginger Gerald, you lucky bastard. Make sure this pod remains a part of your weekly routine. And don't forget, it's never too late to get others involved. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it freely across your real and virtual networks and get them to follow and subscribe. The greater the GGYLB community, the more feedback, the more feedback, the more fun and the more relevant the content. Right, have a good week, everyone. I'm off to pack my bags, not forgetting my podcast microphone, of course. Okay, take care and speak soon. Bye. Thank, Thank you, Ginger, Ginger Gerald, for enriching our lives. lives.